نکته ای که مهمه من به همه مردم قول دادم که از آرای آنها سیانت بخونم از آرای مردم سیانت بخونم بنده و ستاد الان همه بیداریم تا انتهای رایگیری و در اینجا جا داره که از همه مسئولان اجرایی بخواهیم که این امانت سنگین رو حفظ بکنن Hello and welcome to NPR's Planet Money. I'm Adam Davidson in New York City. And I'm Alex Bloomberg, also in New York City. Today is Friday, June 12th. That was Iranian President Mahmoud Ahmadinejad. You heard at the top, and in case your Farsi is a little rusty, here is what he said. He said, I cordially thank the great Iranian nation for all their goodness, magnanimity, and sacrifice. I am sure that people's participation will open the day for bigger works and enlightened movements ahead of the Iranian nation. He was saying that as he was voting. And of course, this was a very big day in Iran. It was presidential elections. And uh, Mr. Ahmadinejad may possibly be looking at the end to his time in office. In a minute, we're going to get to what those elections in Iran have to do with a 48-year-old book that nobody's ever heard of. Nobody in America. Anyway, it's a big read. The central read on economics, possibly, in Iran. Right. But first, our Planet Money Indicator. Alex, today our Planet Money Indicator is 2,531,000. That is the number of job openings in the U.S. in April. Two and a half million job openings, recession over. This is fabulous news. Yeah, not so fast, pal. That's the lowest number of job openings since the Department of Labor started measuring the statistic uh, in December of 2000. Right. And of course, new jobs is just one part of the big employment picture. If you want to know the full picture, you need to add how many new jobs are created in a month and then subtract all the people who have been separated from the job they had. And most of the time, that's positive. There's more new jobs than jobs lost. But of course, not for the last many months. Right. So folks have been celebrating that that these job loss numbers are going down slightly. But what the survey tells us is that new openings are also going down. So to get healthy as an economy, we don't just need fewer people getting laid off. We also need more people getting new jobs. We have a scary chart about all of this on our blog, npr.org slash money. All right, Adam, on to Iran. Yes. There's a big election over there today. Incumbent President Mahmoud Ahmadinejad in a pitched battle against his challenger, Mir Hussein Mousavi. Now, in the West, we usually look at Iranian politics in terms of hardliners versus reformers. Ahmadinejad gets elected, and we take it to mean that the country as a whole, the people, are turning towards religious zealotry. If Musavi wins, they're all ready to support gay marriage and become a liberal, secular democracy. But when you reach out, as we have done, to Iranians and and ask them for their perspective, they say, actually... These elections are, for a lot of them, it's all about money. Uh, A big reason that Ahmadinejad won two years ago is not because he denies the Holocaust and hates America. It's because he had this plan that he promised to help poor people, mostly outside of the cosmopolitan center of Tehran, get more jobs and access to better infrastructure and more economic development. So in Iran, as in America, it's all about the economy, stupid. But 
what kind of economy? Uh, you know, Alex, you know, one of the formative experiences of my life was spending <laughs> a year in Iraq. I mention it all the time. And there's one thing that I, I kept wanting to look into more. I kept hearing about this book called Iktisadna. Uh, I believe that means our economy. Um, which people told me explains how Shia Muslims approach economics. Iran, of course, is a Shia country, and almost 60% of Iraq is also Shia. And the world of Shia economic thinking was just completely revolutionized in 1961 with the publication of Iktisadna by Ayatollah Muhammad Bakr al-Sadr. The Sadrs are a very important, old, learned Iraqi Shia family. They're now most famous for Muhammad's nephew, Muqtada al-Sadr. Who is invariably referred to in the press over here as the fiery anti-American cleric. But the uncle was... Not so fiery. Not as fiery, not as anti-American. He was a more tempered, thoughtful, although you know, had, had fierce political views. Um, and, and, and there's a way of looking at him as almost an Iraqi Thomas Jefferson, a thoughtful scholar who was at the same time a political visionary founding the Dawa Party and, and coming up with a dream for a new ideal Iraqi state. And to do that, he, he did something that was pretty radical. In the traditional Shia university system, which goes back more than a thousand years, Scholars typically study only Islamic texts, not Sadr. He looked at the communist system and the capitalist system. And in, in this book, he actually <clears throat> criticizes both and rejects both. And he proposes an Islamic system. This is Syed Mohsen Nakvi, a Shia Islamic scholar who runs Independent Viewpoints, which is a nonprofit that lets folks know about Shiism. It's based in New Jersey. Nakvi says that as radical as Sadr's book was when it came out, a lot of people paid attention to it. It was a groundbreaking study. And the book that he produced has a very significant and actually a momentous event in Islamic studies itself. And the way Islamic scholars have been working to, to uh, propose a, a theory of state and a theory of government. And this book is going to influence uh, the Islamic thought in, on those lines for centuries to come. So Sadr based his economics on countries like his own, like Iraq, when with a lot of poor people and a very rich natural resource like oil. Sadr wrote his book right after the king of Iraq was deposed, and this was well before Saddam Hussein took over as dictator. And in the early 60s in Iraq and around the Muslim world, there's all this hope that they could move towards a new, freer, positive direction. And Sadr thought a lot about how the economics of that would look, how economics would work in a model Islamic state. He is proposing that all wealth, all property belongs to God. Now, um, that doesn't mean that individual property ownership is not allowed in Islam. It is allowed to a certain legitimate limits. He sets limits for everything. Uh, he does not allow a rich man to come in <clears throat> and take over a, a property or an industry and start making profit out of that industry or that land ownership by paying laborers a minimum wage and not sharing the profit from the enterprise with the workers. So from that point of view, his theory is very close to communism. So sometimes Sadr sounds like a communist. Sometimes he sounds like a full-on capitalist. He encourages private investment and entrepreneurship. But he says, and obviously the, this is based on the Quran, that interest 
payments are not allowed, right? It's sort of the paradox of, of sort of uh, Islamic capitalism. And so in his theoretical framework, you can be a venture capitalist and sort of invest in uh, invest in a company and then share in its profits or its misfortunes, but you cannot be a bondholder. Which is strange because when I picture venture capitalists, I picture the people in our society who benefit the most from other people's hard work. And when I think of bondholders... You know, I picture sort of sweet retirees. Retirees, (laughs) right, exactly. Um, Sadr also has very specific ideas about how natural resources should be part of the economy, which is, of course, very important in Iraq because water is scarce and oil is a plentiful resource right now, but everyone knows it's going to run out someday. Water is a natural resource that is shared by the entire population of the country. It cannot be owned by any individual except... If an individual, by his own hard work, has dug a well or a natural spring, which is underground, by putting his labor into it, then he can charge for the use of the water produced from that well or or the underground spring. But if I pay you to dig a well, I can't charge? Only you can? If, If you own a piece of land and you dig on that land, and produce fresh water, you own that fresh water. So water, pretty straight capitalism. If you own your own land, you can take advantage of what is on your land. Oil, totally different story. No one is allowed to uh, to discover oil in his backyard and start selling it and making profit of it. All natural resource belongs to the state. I'd say this bit about oil might be the part that would raise the most red flags for Western economists. Uh, you know, they would say that if no individual has the private property right to develop the oil, you get the tragedy of the commons. There's no incentive to get the oil out of the ground or to come up with more creative, more innovative, cheaper, faster, more efficient ways to get the oil out of the ground. It's like the oceans. If everyone owns the oceans, everyone ends up either overfishing or polluting or neglecting them in some way. And also, I think most Westerners would be suspicious about the possibility of a powerful religious state that always has the people's best interest in mind. That just seems like something that doesn't seem really possible to, I think, a lot of Westerners. But Nakvi says that in his view, the Western system works for the West for the most part. He does have some Sadr-based criticisms of our society as well. But he said that Sadr is tailor-made for Shia Muslim societies. Right, because there's all these Muslim traditions that would help bolster a sort of Muslim-based economy. For example, there's this voluntary tax. This is not Sadrism. This is just sort of like uh, Shia Islam um, practice. It's this thing called homps. Everyone who's a Shia Muslim is expected to give 20% of their profits to a religious leader, an ayatollah of their choosing, every year. So if this taxing system works, and it does work in the Shia Islam, uh, I mean, I have seen it in my own eyes, the farmers in the outer areas of Azerbaijan who have no control, any police or any documentation, at the end of the year, they collect their homes, uh, 20% of their wealth, and they come and they see the ayatollah, and they just put the money in front of him and go away. They don't even ask him where it's money going to be spent. <laughs> really? So that system works. And the Ayatollah, in turn, is either running a school or a hospital or just paying that money to poor who do not have enough to eat. And that's, that exists right now. In, that in, exists right now. In Iran. 
So every rug merchant in the bazaar every, at the end of the year. The, the smallest shopkeeper, if he makes a profit, he saves money, he pays his homes. Huh. And if he doesn't, he'll have a lot of answering to do to his neighbors? No. Nothing like that. There's no vigilantism. So he doesn't, the, the only, so everybody does it even though nobody's compelled to do it? Yes. The, the religiosity of the society is so deep in this respect that they are answerable to God and they feel that their marja is responsible to collect that sum and do the service, God's service. So they do it out of their own religious conviction. Well, it, it I, is an unbelievable thing. But it works, uh, Professor. I, I, as a as a greedy, money driven, born and raised American, I, 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 it's it's a it's hard, a little bit hard for me to believe to believe that it works on such a widespread scale. But fortunately, I have a way of fact checking you, which is uh, my wife is Iranian, so I mm-hmm. think I'm going to see if, uh, and I think she has relatives who work in the bazaar. Ask her. Yeah, I will ask her and see what they have to say about this homes. Okay. So we we did some fact checking. I uh, called up my wife. She didn't know what I was talking about, but she said I should call her father. Uh, so I called my father-in-law, Abbas Rafsanjani, and he knew exactly what I was talking about. Abbas, we we, we were just talking to this to a, uh, a Shia Muslim scholar, and he was talking. He was telling us about the system of taxation uh, called uh, Homs. Yeah, Homs. Now, and so I. I we, he told us something that we found sort of incredible, and I, I told him I was going to fact check with you what he said. Okay, so this is what he said. He said that in Iran, pretty much every single person who – every single business person, they take 20% of their profits every year, and without being forced to or coerced in any way, they just give 20% to uh, their favorite Ayatollah. That's right. One one fifth of their uh, income. Everybody. Well, everybody they wanted to do that. Most of the people they do that, but a lot of people they don't do that. Also, they don't. Not no everybody. No. So it's not universal. No, it's not. Okay. No. Now, it's not now, like here, uh, April fifteen. Everybody they have to pay taxes, <laughs> but there is uh, they have to do it by. Uh, Islamic law, but uh, mm, depend on a lot of people. They don't do that. So, so, so. In other words, it is the law, but not everybody obeys that particular law. Absolutely. I see. I is see. it the government law or or Islamic law? No, Islamic law. law. I see. Okay. So you can't go to jail if you don't pay your homes. No. No. Okay. No. <laughs> now, now, how? how I mean, if you had to, you you have family that works at the bazaar, right? That's right. Yeah. What what and what do they sell there? Well, they sell mostly they they, they are in the uh, clothing business. Uh huh. Yeah. And they sell uh, clothes. They make it and then uh, outside the bazaar and then bring them there and then it's like a wholesaler. I see. You know, then they they sell them to the vendor, and the vendor go to the cities or come to bazaar because bazaar always is the price is much much lower than the street. Right. Do your do your relatives they 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 pay this homes homes? They pay. Yeah. They do. Yeah. And is it a special day? Is it like is there a certain day, or is it just whenever you no, get? No, 
No, whatever they want. Uh, they have time, they go uh, and then meet and then they say whatever they say to the, that, uh, you know, scholar or uh, ayatollah, they, they believe in. There's nothing in the papers. So exactly, they said, I made this amount of money, now it's 20%, it's this much. They pay as much as they can, but they believe it's going to be 20% of their income. Oh, but no one's doing an audit, no one's checking their books. No, no. And do you think your family actually does pay 20%? Well, I don't think so. <laughs> All of them. <laughs> no. Okay, so Holmes seems, you know... It's out there. It's out there. People <laughs> yeah. might not give the full 20% necessarily, but they are. There's an active charitable. Right. And I saw this in the Shia neighborhoods in Iraq, I have to say. There's a very active, uh, self-motivating charity that, that worked very well, as far as I could tell. Right. And so so um, it might be it's possible to imagine that this could be the foundation for some type of a Muslim economic system. As for Sadr's ideas... Um, they are still very much in the theoretical stage. Nakvi says that no nation has fully implemented um, Sadrism. But, Nakvi says, to understand modern Iran or modern Iraq, Sadr is really helpful. Because uh, Iran's Ayatollah Khomeini, who of course founded basically the modern um, religious-based state of Iran, uh, was very into Sadr. He saw Sadr as one of his most promising disciples. And uh, right now in Iraq, uh, they're writing their constitution, and Iraq's leading Ayatollah, Ali Sistani, is trying to get the ideas in Sadr's book baked into the new constitution to have them be the basis of Iraqi economics. Right. So in 20 years, it's possible we will be talking about capitalist countries, socialist countries, and Sadrist countries. We'll see. It'll be interesting to see how those how those fare. So let's move from economics rooted in ancient Islamic jurisprudence to the most modern economics possible, what I call space economics. <laughs> space economics, the economics of space, which, as everyone knows, is the final frontier. Alex, you talked with our intern, Matt Katz, about a trip he made to a recent space business conference here in New York. Matt, uh, tell me about this conference. Yeah, it's this conference, and they've been holding it for two years now, that's supposed to hook up investors from Wall Street here in New York with people in the space industry. So the space industry, <laughs> um, I thought space was basically just government like NASA, but there's an actual industry now? Yeah, yeah, there is. And it's it's worth a lot. It's a $257 billion, actually. And these days, most of that is actually flowing into companies and not the government. So there are three parts to this industry. You can build communication satellites, and that's pretty straightforward. You have people building stuff for NASA, subcontractors, and that sort of thing. So they're building, like, rockets and things, engine parts and stuff for NASA. Exactly. And then there's this third part, which is sort of the sexy part, and that's you try to do space yourself, fully private commercial space travel. Right. And I think we should point out that we, you know, we, uh, we might have heard of these billionaires um, and multimillionaires who fly into space. Like there's this guy, Dennis Tito. Um, usually these guys go up on like a Russian spacecraft. They pay a whole bunch of money and then they go up and then they come back down. But that's not what these people are talking about when they're talking about fully commercial private space travel. They're not talking about that, right? Right. Uh, I spoke with Andrew Nelson, who's the chief operating officer at Xcor Aerospace, which is one of these companies. And he wants to make space travel for the masses along the lines of another company that he admires. The Southwest Airline model of operations, we're applying to rocketry. And what's really exciting about this is it's not the old model of build a rocket, launch it, 
99% of it gets thrown away. We're actually building completely reusable rocket-powered vehicles. So just like today's jet engine, you go fly around, you land, you put gas in it, you do your checklist, and you take off again. So touch wood, uh, you know, you'll be hearing X-Core in the same sentence as Boeing and Northrop and Lockheed Martin one day. Yeah, that's pretty crazy, sort of like rocket planes instead of jet planes. Yeah, it's cool stuff. He's got pretty big dreams. Your listeners one day will be able to take a rocket ride, whether it's up to space and back, or maybe 15, 20 years from now, fly from New York to Paris in 30 minutes. So, Matt, I got to say, you know, I'm 42 years old, and I remember the space race. I remember watching, you know, these, the Apollo rockets go up and people land on the moon. And it seems to me that we've been hearing this for a long time. You know, the commercial space travel is always just around the corner. Yeah, it's kind of like the flying car. And Nelson's, <laughs> right. Nelson's company still hasn't built a vehicle yet. He says his first ship won't be able to fly for another 18 months. Wow. Um that sort of brings up another issue here, though, is um, so you're at this conference where there's space investors. Who are these investors? Well, I spoke to one of them. She works at Morgan Stanley. Morgan Stanley is a Wall Street bank, and they actually have space analysts at Morgan Stanley? Yeah, she's what's called an aerospace and defense analyst. Huh. So what'd she say? What, what are the hot space investments out there? Well, she says there aren't any. <laughs> well, I would say that it isn't, it isn't the time to invest in space yet. You know, space is exciting, but at least so far, it, it's not really profitable. Space investments have been characterized by abnormally high risk or higher than usual, if you think about businesses, uh, high risk and lower than usual returns, uh, very often failures and bankruptcies. So that's put a little bit, uh, from time to time, a bad taste in, in investors' mouths. All right, so what's going on in this, at this conference? You've got people, you've got these space people trying to get money and the, and the money people saying no, basically. Well, there is money, and it's mostly rich, eccentric geeks who made millions or billions in the tech industry, and they're investing into a dream more than they are into profit. These are the people who, you know, grew up on sci-fi and Cape Canaveral and thought by the time they'd be the age that they are now, they'd be in space. I spoke with one of them at the conference. His name is Richard Garriott. He made millions as a computer game designer and then moved over to space. And so it wasn't one of these things you had to decide. I never grew up as a kid going, when I grew up, I'm going to be an astronaut. I just assumed we were all going. <laughs> wow, okay. So, so, yeah, what did he say? Well, he actually went into space last year, and in fact, he funded a company to get him there. Uh, he invested in this company, Space Adventures, which works with Russia to bring private citizens to space, as long as they've got, you know, the tens of millions of dollars to cough up. Right. And, and Garriott's sort of operating on something more powerful than the traditional profit motive. His dad was an astronaut, but when he went to follow in his dad's footsteps, NASA doctors told him that his poor eyesight meant that he never would be one. That same moment was when I said, well, wait a minute. You know, who are you to be able to tell me whether I'm allowed to go into space or not? If I can't go with you or with NASA, I'm going to have to go privately. Wow. So this guy, it sounds like what he's saying is this is where we are, basically, that, you know, if, if you have $10 million, you can fly on a Russian rocket. Is that is that it? Not exactly. It's not just, you know, like selling tickets to Disneyland. There are other things you can do in space that can make money. And when Garriott went on his private junket into space, he might have discovered some of that stuff. Uh, on his trip, he did a whole bunch of science. And it turns out that there are these crystals that you can grow that might actually be able to stop illnesses like AIDS. But if you grow those crystals here on the ground, gravity disturbs the growth of that crystal. So you get small, impure crystals. 
If you grow those same crystals in space, you get much more purity, and they become much larger. And so you can get a much more precise molecular structure, which is worth years and therefore also millions of dollars in a reduction of time to market or expense to develop for a lot of therapies for medical science. So, so, so it be- began as essentially a vanity project for a sort of nostalgic, space-obsessed, NASA-rebuffed multimillionaire might actually turn into sort of a, a, a profitable industry. Yeah, I mean, it could even help cure diseases. Right. The future is today. Well, whether it'll all succeed and be profitable is still an open question. Most of these companies are surviving on large capital investments by people like Garriott or the tech millionaire Esther Dyson, who invested heavily in XCore, which was Andrew Nelson's company that we talked about earlier. But he's the Southwest Airlines guy. He's the Southwest Airlines guy. But things are, are looking pretty good for them right now. Most of these new space companies are, are based in the Mojave Desert, which is being called the Silicon Valley of space. And they're they're building their own infrastructure there. It's this, if you build it, money will come idea that it's been working for them so far. And in that spirit, they've built a spaceport. A, a spaceport? It, it's an airport for spaceships. So when space is profitable, they'll be ready. Matt Kentz, Planet Money's intern. There is a lot more about space economics and Shia economics on our blog, npr.org slash money. Thanks to Jacob Gans and Caitlin Kenny, the incredible production team that put this podcast together every day. They worked particularly hard today. Thank you. I'm Adam Davidson. And I'm Alex Bloomberg. Thank you for listening.